Great. Thanks, Peter and Ben. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so like Leah said, if you're visiting today, welcome to our church. We're glad you guys are, are uh, joining today. Um, so we're in a series right now, a sermon series on the books of First and Second Samuel, which will, um, a lot of you are aware, will take us through the school year. So we're just b- barely at the beginning here, uh, three, four weeks in. And so um, just to remind you briefly of how we're approaching this book, if you want more on what I'm about to say, like more depth, then I'd point you back to our first sermon on this, which you can access on our website, on our SoundCloud account, uh, our podcast there, uh, or just come talk to me too after church or some other time. Love to buy you coffee and talk more about uh, biblical interpretation and how we go about understanding the Old Testament in relation to the New and all that uh, really fun stuff. So, uh, but basically, so what we're going to do in terms of reading this book, which contains a lot of uh, kind of cryptic passages, like a lot of the Bible does, just difficult to understand stories, especially when it comes to applicability and relevance uh, to our life, whether we're seeing that on just being on this side of the cross in the New Testament or just not from that part of the world and just some words that we don't use anymore even uh, in most uh, you know, um, days with English and everything. And so uh, whatever it is, or somewhere in between, uh, the idea is that Jesus grants clarity where there's fogginess. And so we're going to follow Jesus' lead, actually, in how he reads these books, which was to see his story of sacrificial love, his story of grace typified and foreshadowed in all of it. So all the characters, all the events, songs, promises, uh, details, you name it, uh, to see Jesus' love and grace typified and whispered. Uh, in, in those uh, smaller narratives that help tell the greater story. Um, and you see Jesus do this, whether it's explicitly in Mark 2 or places like that where he literally quotes from Second Samuel and says, actually, these stories are about me, and he may connect some dots there and, and talks about how they set the stage for him, uh, or whether it's implicitly, implicitly in places like Luke 24 where he does that with the whole of the Old Testament, which certainly included for Second Samuel and pointing to different places and saying, here I am. Uh, that's, that's going to be our approach. Uh, we're following the Bible's lead, basically, uh, in this, which is the safest place to be with interpretation. R- rather than bringing your own ideas and assertions uh, in terms of how we come to meaning, bringing the Bible's is the safest uh, place, uh, place to be. Last week, then, to catch you up if you weren't here, um, we met Hannah. Hannah is Samuel's mom. The book starts with Hannah being barren for many years, crying out to God in her desperation for fertility and to have a child. God hears her prayer and answers, and now she has a son, Samuel, uh, who was already at this point weaned. That's the end of chapter one, which we did not look at last week, but if you want to look at that, I'd encourage you to do that. We're going to skip ahead here this week to chapter two, verses one to 11, and look at Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving, her song, essentially, uh, before leaving Samuel to serve at the temple underneath Eli the priest. Um, So those are the big characters that we've met so far in this book. Eli, Hannah, Samuel, there are some others. Elkanah, uh, which was Hannah's husband, uh, Samuel's dad, last week was a big part of that passage. But we're starting to slowly meet people that are going to, in some ways, help tell this story that's going to lead us ahead and serve as the theological genealogy of sorts uh, of the Messiah. Uh, and give way to, to Christ crucified and raised uh, as kind of the pinnacle of, of all Scripture. So, um, so let's dive in. First uh, Samuel 2, 1 to 11. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. Uh, most of it's in your sermon insert. Couldn't fit it all this week. Sorry about that. Uh, but this will be on screen here uh, as well. So let's start with verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. 
Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. All right, so a little bit of narrative there at the end too. But uh, most of this is Han- uh, Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving. So uh, some initial remarks here. Um, this is a very different Hannah from chapter 1. So if you weren't here, hear this. Uh, if you were, you probably can feel this. Same Hannah, obviously, but different um, kind of posture, different energy, uh, different um, emotion. She uh, is kind of uh, switched from a place of like bartering with God and saying, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you, which we talked about uh, the, the pitfalls uh, and the problems with that way of thinking about God uh, in spirituality. Uh, to now just being very one way. Now Hannah's just thanking God and being very, you know, all praises due him and thanking her for everything, uh, especially uh, answering her prayer and giving her, giving her a son. And so in terms of what changed, we obviously kind of know the answer to that. Uh, she now has a child. She didn't for so long. She was kind of uh, teased and incited by this other wife, uh, Penina, who did it, was fertile. And we talked about that last week. And so she had tons of despair uh, and, and problems and seeming like unanswered prayer for so long. And that's all, all different now. All right. With that said, though, and you may or may not have felt this, but... This is quite the prayer to pray for not, or for all of a sudden being able to have a child, isn't it? It feels like she's praying too big, like if that were possible. Uh, it's kind of like uh, if someone prayed after the Vikings hopefully win tomorrow night, uh, and they started to say, my heart rejoices in the Lord, and my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like God. Don't be so proud or boastful. The Lord knows by him deeds are weighed. All of a sudden, we're like way out in the weeds, uh, uh, in, maybe in a good way, but way out in the weeds of like, what are we talking about? Like if you're watching the Vikings and with friends, your friends might be saying, dude, what are you, I mean, I'm thankful they won too, but it's a football game. Like, you know, and I know conception is a bigger deal. Having a child's a much bigger deal than a, than a piddly um, football game. Uh, but the point stands, like if there is something in the Bible to indicate that more is going on than the physical story itself, like this would be it, Hannah's prayer. After conception, not really praying specifically about conception or the ability to all of a sudden have children. There's one verse in there about that, but the rest is like much bigger, like cosmic, larger, you know, stretching themes that, that kind of transcend all kinds of things. 
uh, clearly she's being drawn into thinking about other things, about existence and about who God is and about life and about sin and about judgment. You know, again, it's just sort of like, I mean, maybe like having a child or maybe a Vikings win will make you think about life's bigger, bigger, bigger questions, and that's great. Uh, but there's also like more going on here than, than uh, meets the eye. And we're supposed to, as readers, kind of join Hannah in saying, it's not really about the barrenness. It's not about the baby. It's not about conception. It's about something deeper, something that pertains to God himself and to the bigger questions of life, including salvation. Uh, St. Augustine in the 4th century says, in commentary on this passage, are people's minds so turned away from the light of truth that they do not feel the words poured out by Hannah transcend the limit of her own thoughts? Her very name means God's grace and thereby speaks of the city of God itself, whose king and founder is Christ, and of the grace of God itself, from which the proud are estranged and the humbled are risen up. All right, so what he's saying is, don't be so blind into thinking that Hannah's prayer is about Hannah's prayer. Don't be so closed off to the, to, to the truth that there's more going on here than the physical shell. That's what he's saying. Which is a great like, principle just for reading the Bible in general. Uh, but it's sort of like, a, I think of a milk dud, that candy sometimes with the chocolate shell. There's always going to be a chocolate outer shell to stories like this. I mean, Hannah was a real person. This actually happened. And of course, her conception matters. These are big parts of life. But there's an inner caramel that we're meant to get to. And if we just stop at this just being about Hannah's prayer, we not only miss the whole point of the Bible, we miss actually what Hannah's trying to get at. Clearly, Hannah's going beyond what just happened to her to things that are even more important, um, especially on a spiritual level. And so that's what Hannah's trying to, the Bible's trying to say, Samuel is in writing this, Hannah is in praying it, St. Augustine is in commenting on it, and that's what we're going to do too, not just today, but throughout this entire series. This prayer is ultimately about Jesus Christ and the endless grace therein. So to help us see that today through the language that it gives us, uh, I want to start two big, two big things today. The first is to look at some of these surprises uh, in the passage, and then we'll look at um, some things around atonement a little bit later on. But first, this, um, this idea of the twists and turns and grace-filled surprises of this Old Testament song uh, or, or prayer. So um, again, remember what preceded all of this. I said some of it before, but Hannah has taken quite a story arc here. She has moved from a state of prolonged despair, relentless persecution from her rival Penina over not being able to have kids, to trying to make a deal with God so she could conceive a child, then to simply asking God for healing, not offering him anything, but just praying for God to heal, and then to finding comfort in the love of her husband Elkanah, and then finally to now conceiving and birthing Samuel and, and praying this prayer of thanksgiving. There's a lot wrapped up in all of that. We talked about a lot of it last week. But again, the nature of her prayer tells us it's not really about the baby. It's about the grace of God given to her when she was unable to solve her own problems. No matter how hard she worked, no matter how many promises she made to God, no matter how much wine she abstained from, she needed God to work single-handedly to give life to her by the work of her own hand. 
And her prayer, in many and various ways, conceptualizes this idea uh, with poetic language, with dualisms, with surprises, and with twists that ultimately lead her to worship. And, um, and maybe that's a helpful kind of avenue into this as well. The fact that she's worshiping at all, not just in the way that she is, but that she's worshiping at all indicates that, you know, she actually is starting to connect some dots here between what God did and, and didn't do or, or why he did what he did uh, versus, um, uh, you know, thinking about herself as part of the equation. So in other words, um, we're, true worship doesn't come from, I did something great and now God is doing something for me. That's not a worshipful thought. If any kind of worship comes from that, it's very contrived and um, kind of pithy at best. It's, it's a passing. It's not, not truly going to change the heart. True worship comes from, I was given to when I didn't deserve it. That's where true worship comes from. I was given to by God when I didn't deserve it. When I was doing everything wrong, God still gave to me. That makes the heart sing. Uh, it humbles us and might greatly offend us, but it also makes us sing uh, in, in the same breath. It's precisely what Hannah just got done doing too. When you like live in a way that's trying to make a deal with God, you're doing it all wrong. And yet God is still giving uh, and pouring out. So it doesn't say because of, but in spite of. Always remember that. And so the way you see this play out then is kind of many and varied. I'll look at a couple of things here and I'll throw them on screen to remind you of what we just read. Um, these are some of those, you know, kind of dualisms. God does this, and then he does this, which is the same thing, but the other side of the coin. Uh, so things like, the bows of warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are given strength. So like, navy seals trip up and fall on their own sword and die, but those who stumble around because they're half uh, paralyzed are somehow given strength. It's this very, like, backwards way of thinking about reality, but this is how God thinks and works in the world. God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heaps. Not, not the well and the able and the rich, but those who are poor and like have nothing, those are the ones he's doing something for. So have nothing to give to God, yet he's he, not asking. He's lifting anyway. And then she who was barren has born seven children, but, but she who was fertile is kind of pining away now. And it's important to understand then, again, that this is not poverty theology being talked about here. That would say, God honors the poor simply because they're poor. This is not a political theology of any kind, quite, quite the opposite. Wealth and strength and fertility are not the enemy. Those can be seen as gifts of God as well, if and when they come in our life in different ways. But rather, those things, wealth, strength, and fertility, kind of are the enemy in the sense of what they represent. Not in and of themselves, but what they re represent in the story, which is a trust in the self or human works, especially when held against their, their opposites. So look at what verse 5 says. Uh, those who are full are hiring themselves out for food. They're like saying, I'm going to pay myself to do more and uh, make another meal for myself and continue to fill my stomach. But those who are hungry are all of a sudden mystically, magically Hungry no more, and it's very definitive. And then verse 9, it's not by strength one prevails, but rather the strength of someone else who will benefit you, the strength of God's king, who is ultimately King Jesus. A lot of Jesus' beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, which may have come to mind even as I read this in places like Matthew 5 or Luke 6, you know, say things like, blessed are you when you mourn, 
because then you'll go to God and be comforted and not look to yourself for the solution, but look to someone outside of you, ultimately him. Uh, in Luke 6, he actually says, woe to you when you laugh. Be very, very wary. Be very careful when you laugh a lot in life. And again, God's not against laughter. He loves laughter. Jesus laughed all the time. But he is saying when you laugh a lot, the danger is that you'll fail to see your need for deliverance and you'll think you're enough. It's the same thing. Again, with this first one here, when we're full, we tend to keep turning back on ourselves and quote-unquote hiring ourselves for more good things in life. Um, But when we're hungry, you know, it's a different story. Uh, And so grace sings that opposite tune. Grace says only God works in the end and it's only his works that ultimately matter, whether they're through us or apart from us. Um, Made me think too of John 6 where Jesus says, when you eat the the bread of my body, you'll hunger no more. Uh, But all other breads in this world and in life will only like satiate and satisfy for like a couple hours at best, right? Uh, But with Jesus, he gives that hunger outside of us when we're not hired out for the work, but when he does the work uh, that will we'll fully satiate. I think verse 8's interesting too, and if, if you're like me, this is um, maybe the verse, or verses like it in the Psalms and places like that are kind of flyover verses sometimes where we think, you know, is this just a natural theology here? Are we just talking about God as a creator? And is that it? Well, I know that, so I'll kind of keep moving on. But I think there's more here going on than meets the eye. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. And in order to see more here, just kind of let me uh, get a little bit philosophical for just a minute. Um, If this is true, this means every single thing we do is somehow undergirded and preceded by God. Because every single thing we do is on the earth, on something he's already done or already made. Uh, In other words, there is no such thing as perfect autonomy in the Christian worldview. There's no original thought. There's no original deed. Uh, If we do something good on the earth, then we do something good literally on something God has already created. That is the rock underneath our feet. That is is the earth. Uh, It reminded me of uh, the old joke about the... um, atheist humanists and God who have a human-making contest? You guys ever heard this joke? No one did first service either. So I thought it was really popular, but um, maybe some of you have. It's fine. But so the joke is basically, I'm going to butcher it probably, but it's, a, it's about these humanists and atheists who feel like um, we're self-sufficient. And so they go to God and say, we don't need you anymore. We can clone people. We can manipulate atoms. We can build molecules. We can fly through space. Um, we don't need you anymore. And so um, humanist is probably better than atheist because if you're an atheist and you see God, you probably won't be one anymore. So I get that. Uh, let's just say humanist. Um, so the humanist goes to God and says, we don't need you. And um, so God says, all right, before I go away, let's have a human-making contest. Uh, but let's do it the way I did it at the beginning. Like when I made a human in Adam the first time, I used the dust of the ground and soil or dirt. And so the humanist is like, um, okay. Well, let's do that. And so he starts to gather dirt together, and God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Get your own dirt. So it's, it's the same thing. Uh, Carl Sagan even has said, to really make an apple pie from scratch, you must begin by inventing the universe. See, all the good you've ever done has not been autonomous, as though you've done it. Who do you think gave you your hands? 
Who gave you the world around you to do the good in at all in the first place? That air you're breathing, who gave you that? The ability to think and reason? See, this is how Christians think anyway about doing good. We don't do good because we think we actually can. We do good because we think God is alive in us. Not so we might be saved by how well we do it, but that we make much of the good he has already done. See, all good is built on the foundation, not just of the earth, but of the gospel. The gospel is that rock underneath our feet, the rock being Christ, as scriptures say, as scriptures teach. He is the rock, the foundation off of which we can do anything. And so the point is humility. There's so much about in Hannah's song about humility and about warnings against arrogance. This is about the foolishness of thinking that our works count for anything autonomously in a universe created atom up by God. Like how foolish that is to think that way. Period, as humans, but especially as people who are people of God. In this case, let's just say Christians, who, who are learning to think more wisely about reality and about where good comes from at all. We never, ever source good, you guys. It never comes from us. It's only from the one who laid the foundations of the earth and set us upon it. All right, then we switch gears. We'll come back to some of that. Um, But here I think it's important to take one little almost half step back as you think about all of that and almost start to think about like, because the Bible does this a lot. The Bible, I think, challenges our notion of what we think goodness actually is a lot. And that's healthy and good, where it comes from. Even Jesus says to the rich young ruler who said, good teacher, Remember what Jesus says back to him? Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, God. So the son of God is saying this, you know? And so it just like pushes back on the rich young ruler saying, you think there's so much goodness out there. Just There's only one good being in the universe and it's the father. And so anyway, if I was preaching Mark 10, we'd go deeper. But um, the need for atonement then in Hannah's prayer, I think starts to pop when these bigger existential and theological questions about about all this stuff kind of pop. Um, there, there's a, in other words, there's kind of a problem. Maybe you felt this. Uh, kind of an oof in Hannah's prayer. And it comes from places like verse 3 where she says, Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. All right. Now, I don't think Hannah's being preachy here. This is a personal prayer anyway, right? So when I say she's not being preachy, I mean she's not like have a, she has a huge audience here. And again, in context, she just got done thinking she was strong enough to lure God's head by her self-denial and her religious asceticism and all these things, which is a form of pride in opposing God's grace. And so she's reminding herself of these things. And of course, praying the the universal truth over all of us as as fellow human beings and as readers of God's word. Um, But the idea is God is a God who knows everything, who weighs deeds like in a scale. And, And none can escape on the basis of trying to balance them out uh, on them, uh, by themselves. Or and maybe it's not balancing. Maybe it's weighing down the good, right, uh, heavily. Uh, and, and, and the, the, the bad side going way up. Uh, Daniel 5 says this. This is the famous writing on the wall passage that some of you maybe know about where um, 
where it says, you have been weighed in the scales and have not measured up. You've been weighed in the scales and have not measured up. And so it's against this backdrop then that a lot of what Hannah is saying and saying it so happily that we have to start to question, like, how is she so joyous? Um, the, the joy from Hannah comes from not needing to be the solution. It, it's, um, her joy comes apart from the scales. Her joy comes from um, other places in her prayer where she says that God sees the weak. And so uh, she's okay being weak, not having all the answers. And that's how the story is driven forward. If we ask the, the ultimate question to any passage is, where is Jesus in this story? And if we ask that here, we see that the gospel says, instead of our deeds being weighed as the final word, the gospel says Jesus is weighed for us. He's put on trial and found guilty, though innocent. Uh, Places like Mark 15, where it says, and the, the crowds cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He's also, to borrow language from Hannah's prayer elsewhere, he's the rock who would be struck. He is the broken bow uh, who, who, who was broken himself, uh, like the broken bread. He talks about himself in those terms elsewhere in the Gospels. So you see, the warning remains that God wars against sin. He will judge the ends of the earth. No one can escape. But the promise is that he will send his son to take the blow himself as the ultimate expression of his grace. To be broken for those with broken bows, you could say. Um, this reminded me of our, um, so we, we, the Jesus Storybook Bible is the Bible we use downstairs to teach our, our kids about Jesus. A lot of you guys have read this, I know, and maybe teach our kids with it, so uh, you know this. But um, reminded me of a chapter on Noah and the flood in this book by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and um, she says this about Genesis 8, basically, and seeing the gospel in the rainbow. Uh, she says, That's why before the beginning of time, God had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down on his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven, hence the shape of, of a rainbow. So, so again, uh, on one level, shattered bows signify the end of merit-based salvation, works-based salvation. It signifies the, end, the breaking of that. On another level, shattered bows signify Christ himself, the shattered one, the one who would get, to quote Hannah again, who would get thundered on by the Father. We just sang about uh, this in a couple of songs earlier the one who the Father would pour out his wrath on in our place. So the idea is the bow here is turning back on Jesus. It's this sign that the reason why we see these actually after storms because the idea is the storm of God's wrath passes over us and we see this sign of peace from him saying, the way that my wrath will pass over you is by the gun being turned back on me. That's what this is. It's like a bow and arrow being pointed back into heaven. It's this, 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 every time we see it, this sign that God is willing to take the brunt, to bear the brunt, uh, to be struck, to be hit, to be snapped in two, to be crucified unfairly, to be put in the balances for us. All of this is about him. And so we see then that God's grace does not come freely. It does to us, but it comes at great cost uh, to God himself. 
Romans 11 also says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, speaking to Christians, the church in Rome, you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember then it's not about you. It's not you who support the root, but it's the root that supports you. Now, if you know anything about Romans 11, you know there's a lot going on here. But the ultimate truth behind someone being broken off for the sake of the engrafted sinner is Jesus. Jesus was broken off that we might be grafted in since he's the ultimate branch. This is actually a big part of Zechariah's prophecy elsewhere in the Old Testament, if you know about that. He's the ultimate branch, the promised branch who would be snapped off the tree so there's room to put us in. See, it came by suffering. It came by divine suffering. Not ours, but God's. And notice the point then here is very similar to Hannah's prayer, kind of the, one of the so what's, or how do we live out of this questions, this good news, this gospel, is put right here. He says, if you ever feel arrogant or proud or like you're better than other Christians or like God grades on a curve or you're ahead or below, I mean, if you tend to think arrogantly or, or too lowly, either way, it's, it's the same thing, um, then remember that something's been done for you. Remember that you're supported, you're saved, you're sanctified, not by yourself, uh, but you're supported by a broken one. You're supported by a root. You're supported by a different part of the tree. And so we have life alone in the gardener, life alone in the vine, life alone in someone else grafting us in by grace at the great expense of a different part of that tree, namely Christ. All right, so these are then, like I said this before, um, and you'll see this throughout this series, these are the stories and prayers that give way to the Messiah. These are the stories and the concepts and the poetry and the music that give way to the Christ. Uh, they're full of grace and they are full of another's labor. They are full of another's suffering for our benefit that we might go home and rest. In fact, I wanted to include verse 11 today to make that same point. Uh, like it says, Elkanah, who's Samuel's dad, Hannah's husband, went home to Ramah, but the boy stayed. Samuel stayed and ministered and worked before the Lord under Eli the priest. Um, in the same way, it's very similar uh, to us. You see in the story that Elkanah goes home. Hannah go probably is with him and goes home. Samuel stays and works, and in that, Samuel is a picture of our Savior. Like in John 16, uses the same language here where it says, Jesus, right before his arrest and crucifixion, to his disciples, his best friends, a time is coming and in fact has come when you'll be scattered, each to your own home. He means when he's arrested. You'll leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. So there's a reason why this happens and why Jesus says this. Because in the end, the gospel sends us home in peace while Jesus works, while Jesus dies, while he ministers before the Father on our behalf as a substitute and an advocate. And he does so unassisted. Um, it's very clear when Jesus uh, dies, when he's being crucified, the fact that all of his disciples run for their lives, it just screams uh, singularity. It screams 
Jesus does this on his own. It screams, God is not asking for our help. He's giving wholly of himself to us uh, by design, by choice, to show that we're saved by grace, not by our works. So that doesn't mean that there's not a time to love and to work hard at edifying the church and resisting the devil and pick your favorite thing like that in the New Testament. Um, and Maybe to see our lives as a journey or a war, but it does mean that we can take a breath and just stop and breathe and figuratively speaking, go home and rest. Uh, it means that we don't have to define ourselves by um, love and work and resisting the devil, and showing mercy, and all these things that are good things to do. They're not the ultimate thing. Um, it means that we can remember that anything we do in life is done on the foundations of the earth and the foundations of the gospel. So we can live out of freedom, uh, knowing that our salvation has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. And I, so I want to point you back one more time just to, to the lightness that there is in Hannah, the change, and how that change got there. She, she is a woman who moved from thinking that she was able to do something for God, to turn his head, to make a deal or barter with him, to a woman who realizes that way of thinking is old, it's dead, it's outdated, it was never God's plan A. Uh, she, she's a, she's a, an emblem of the New Testament ahead of time, and she's happier because of it. And so the joy then that we see here, the lightness uh, that, that comes from her is coming from this place of realizing we don't have to be strong. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to be doing the Christian life as good as someone else is or better. We don't have to have perfect theology or even to be good for God to love you. Do you guys know that? Do you remember that? You don't have to be good for God to love you. It's like, no, who is good? What is, I mean, can anyone actually autonomously source it anyway? To go back to verse 8, right? It's like, these are the things that are literally changing a life. What changes a life? It's the gospel. It's not work harder. It's not pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. It's not be a better version of yourself. It's not, a, this isn't TED Talk theology. This is, this is centering ourselves on what God has done for us, not what we offer back uh, or, or do. And so his love then becomes the thing that brings true joy everlasting and it leads to worship and to getting outside of ourselves. And that's the only way we're able to love others, by the way, too, is to get outside of yourself. And the only way to get outside of yourself is to be a man or a woman of grace. Um, it's the only way to think about yourself less so you have space, room, in your heart and mind to actually think about someone else because you're not so obsessed with, with you and what you think you should be doing uh, with your time and, and everything like that. So I'm going to uh, close in prayer. I have uh, a prayer that's going to sound a little bit benediction-y. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. Uh, it's because I feel like this, this passage, I don't usually do this, um, but this passage just lends itself beautifully to that. It's almost just um, praying over what happened to Hannah, praying that over. What, may you do, God, for us in this, in this community, what you've done to Hannah. May it be more and more true as the days and the weeks and years uh, go on. So I'll invite the band up and, and, and pray. Father, in, in light of 1 Samuel 2, 
May Hannah's lightness and joy be ours. May her humility in how she was given to undeservedly be ours. May her joy in knowing that God's son would suffer, that she would be comforted, be ours. And may her rest in knowing nothing has to be done in order to receive from God, be ours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.